One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Conversations on Dance is brought to you by Yumiko. Introducing Yumiko at home. Post a picture or video wearing your favorite Yumiko and be entered to win a free piece. Just follow them on Instagram at Yumiko, tag them in your post and use hashtag Yumiko at home. They are choosing a winner every Friday. So be sure to click over to their Instagram for all the details. Remember, you can shop online anytime at Yumiko.com. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week, we are joined by Miko Nissanen, Boston Ballet Artistic Director. Born in Helsinki, Miko began his dance training at the age of 10 with the Finnish National Ballet School and launched his professional dance career at age 15 with the Finnish National Ballet. He went on to continue his dance training at the Kirov Ballet School in St. Petersburg, Russia. He danced professionally for 19 years with Dutch National Ballet, Basel Ballet, and as a principal dancer with San Francisco Ballet. In 2001, he was appointed Artistic Director of Boston Ballet. Now, nearly 20 years into his tenure as director, we talk with Miko about his training and early career, his ambition to always be learning more about ballet, his aspirations to run a large company, and how he landed his position at Boston Ballet. Miko also talks with us about leading the organization through numerous crises, including navigating the current COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you so much for joining us, Miko, uh, here via Zoom. Um, We've wanted you on the podcast for a long time, so we're really excited to, um, of course, get down to um, what has been almost a two-decade role as the the artistic director of Boston Ballet. But first, we want to start a little bit um, with your own training and career. So um, you were born in Finland, and you began training at age 10. And uh, we were wondering what sort of um, gave you the ballet bug, so to speak, at, at that age. Well, you know, I, I was a hyperactive kid who <laughs> did every possible sport until I wore everybody, all the kids and adults in my neighborhood out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I would ask my parents to time me. I would run around the block and it was about five minute run. And the rest of the day I was trying to beat my own time. So uh-huh. obviously I wasn't very smart. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, it's like I, I had so much energy mm-hmm. and it's, you know, I have this life energy that's just like, I can't help. It just c- comes out. And, um, and then, you know, I, through girls, uh, I got interested. I was like, you know, don't you have any guys that too, isn't it for the boys as well? Mm-hmm. And, and little by little, you know, the national ballet school came recruiting and in six months we got they started a boys class with 23 guys in Finland. Mm-hmm. Wow. And um, so that sort of started. And after that, you know, the my perfectionism had a deep well way to throw it. And, mm-hmm. you know, to be a professional dancer, it's such an impossible thing, you know, mm-hmm. in so <laughs> many ways. Start taming that body of yours to 
to be a really good tool for the choreographers. And uh, and then, you know, like uh, four years later, I was offered a professional contract. So it's almost like the profession chose me. Mm-hmm. I had just decided I want to become a professional dancer. I saw Misha Brishnikov dance in, in uh, Copenhagen on a tour with uh, ABT. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, the push comes to shove was a brand new piece, I think, year old. And he did Donkey with Kelsey Kirkland. And the company was just at its heights. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it was like, I thought that was so much more interesting, the world of theater than reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like you said you got your got a first professional contract only four years later five years later at 15 is that right yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. uh with the Finnish national ballet so what were some of the things that you first performed uh with the company you know i think the very first production as, as a pro was a production of till oil and spiegel mm. and then right after that i think uh, believe it or not, it was Jormaelo and me. We got to do this Parekat in Cinderella. Mm-hmm. And then I think right after that, it was to Pesem Padedo and Giselle mm-hmm. for me and uh, wow. Little Slave in Spartacus and sort of Jester in Swan Lake. Mm-hmm. So I was thrown immediately into the all the good stuff. Is that something you were comfortable with at a young age? Like that sort of more virtuoso, you know, techni- the technical demands of something like Pezenpa or a jester role. Was that something I, you enjoyed? I had a very strong technique. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess, you know, that, um, so I, that, that was fun for me. And, you know, I was dancing with these ballerinas who were like, uh, seemed much older than, for me, they were like late late twenties mm-hmm. or early thirties. Uh-huh. I couldn't understand why they would get nervous before the shows. I was drinking my rosehip tea with two cubes of sugar in it, and couldn't wait till the curtain go up. Uh-huh. And at the same time, everybody else is like <laughs> nervous. Uh-huh. And uh, so I was a kid, you know, and I had to I had to grow up very quick. Mm-hmm. So, so funny. Uh, according to your bio, you did some additional training at the Kirov School. Is that correct? How did yep. that sort of come about? You were already dancing professionally. What was it that made you feel like, okay, I need to continue to hone my technique in an academic way? It, it all started when, when um, I started exposing myself, you know, from Finnish National Ballet School, summertime doing a, the best national summer workshop, then went to Denmark and London, mm-hmm. and then Paris and Cannes. Uh, and I was looking at the world of ballet world from the global perspective. And I, I bought books that I read all through the winter mm-hmm. and on my inspiration. And, you know, if I didn't understand a word, I would underline it and look at it from dictionary. And uh, <laughs> so I was like a dance history buff. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to know where the dance is and what's happening and what's new. And that Broad, you know, Jagiela's Ballet Russe, of course, Rudolf Nureyev, and then Brishnikov, and Makarov, and Nizhinsky. And mm-hmm. suddenly I realized that all those people, Balanchine also, that like I admired, mm-hmm. they all come from St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. And after the Second World War, there was an exchange program between Russia and Finland. They sent people to Finland how to study the to study how to build paper factories and things like that. And we definitely don't want to build anything like the Russians do uh, in <laughs> Finland. So uh, we took the scholarships into the, you know, in, in the arts, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Moscow Conservatory, Kiro Ballet Academy. And um, there was a single scholarship that I got and uh, I took a year of leave of absence. And um, it was a remarkable year. Mm-hmm. It was just... Mm-hmm. I got very lucky. It's relatively yeah. close to you, right? I mean, in my mind, at least, um, you know, Finland <laughs> and Russia are neighbors. So it's like, it's kind of amazing that, um, you know, the like epicenter of ballet was something that was next door. Yeah. I mean, it's like almost Russia is a little too close to comfort. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, you know, before Second World War, the border between Finland and Russia was like, 20 miles, 25 miles from St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. And wow. if I look at my grandparents, we were born like right there on, on, on a border. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
there was something I felt at home when I was in St. Petersburg. Mm. And of course, you know, it's easy. It's very different because this is a big, massive city that was built by, you know, started by Peter the Great mm. and uh, doesn't look like Finland at all. <laughs> and, uh, but there was, uh, it was a very special time. I was very lucky. My teacher, Alec Germanovich Sokolov, was like, the teacher at the school and he took a very special interest in me and he even moved the school forward and uh, the way w- they were training and it was still the era when Konstantin Sergeyev and Dudinskel was there. Mm-hmm. I got to do my first Nutcracker except I didn't do the little mouse I started with the lead role. That <laughs> <laughs> was a blast. Uh, so I am curious, of course, we think so much of um, the Kirov training being very disciplined and very strict, and you coming from already knowing what it's like to be a professional dancer and then kind of going back not only just to a studio and a student environment again, but also that strict environment. What was that like for you? Was there a sort of culture shock or did you just kind of eat it all up? Uh, I ate it all up and I, I yeah. just wanted it so bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just... You know, I was a good boy. I mean, I did everything and beyond. And I just worked, worked, worked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, professional environment is you have the responsibility. Hopefully you're as strict with yourself about your ballet technique. Then, you know, it's not what your teacher asks. Mm-hmm. It's you. It's your progress. It's your knowledge. So I, I was a lot tougher, always you know, on myself probably than some of my teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And bullheaded. Mm-hmm. Were you ever interested in dancing professionally in Russia? You know, it's so funny because 1979, 1980, dancing mm-hmm. professionally in Russia as a foreigner, you know, there were a couple people that had been taken in. And, you know, they they show here, show there. Mm -hmm. But it was pretty clear for me what was expected in return on that. You have to sort of, uh, you know, I I never faced a situation where I was asked to, uh, but pretty much they were expected to tell on their friends and, you know, snoop like a little uh, informants. And uh, I knew that. And it's not appealing. <laughs> not something I would ever do. Uh-huh. Interesting. <laughs> so, but you did, um, you know, one thing that I think marks your um, tenure as an artistic director is you're very ambitious, but I'm sure that that started early. And, and when we look at your resume as a dancer, you, that comes across to me. So you didn't stay in Finland. The first company you danced with after was Dutch National. What was that? Um, what kind of spurred that for you? Were you just like, I need to, to move on to something that's going to feed me in a different way? or? Well, you know, by then I had already spent uh, time in uh, America several times mm-hmm. and I was looking into uh, potential work opportunities and then um, I decided to uh, audition for, I think I set up, auditions for like three spots, three companies in Europe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Dutch national was first one of them. And this was, I think like May, early May and Rudy Van Dancing gave me a opportunity that I just couldn't uh, resist. Mm -hmm. And I was very happy. Uh, Went in, I was 20 years old. And I think one of the first things I did a bluebird you know, Sleeping Beauty and a couple other things in it. And then uh, it was amazing two plus years, you know, like I got so much there and I really felt that the company was an artistic environment. You know, there was uh, three house choreographers, Rudy Van Dancing, Hans Van Man and, and Torben Strike. Mm-hmm. Yet we did works from uh, Nijinska, uh, Ashton, the classics, lots of Balanchine works. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's like um, your kid in a candy store. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to dance everything and learn as much as possible and mm-hmm. improve. And, uh, you know, it was a big company, about 100 dancers. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, you know, it was... Um, 
but that sometimes the Euro European pace is not as as driven as uh, you know, like in in America. Mm -hmm. And I had already fell in love with American dance because of its uh, absolute physicality and the hyper musicality. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I went in a, to a Basel that was run by Heinz Sperley and he had excel excellent company and he was very accomplished choreographer himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh my God, we worked like the discipline of the company was incredibly tight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I, it didn't bother me one bit. I, I enjoyed my <laughs> colleagues and, you know, there was very nice touring. And then I was getting, you know, close to being um, in my mid-20s and getting, you know, like the first 10 years of my dancing. And I said, if I love American dance, I don't want to just understand it intellectually. I, I need to be in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And luckily landed at the right place, San Francisco Ballet, Helge Thomason's third year in a company. And um, I felt immediately at home. Mm -hmm. Even when I started dancing, I think it was less common for dancers to sort of um, explore being in other companies. And I know it, the culture in America, at least back then, would have been very much like you get into your place and you stay there the whole time. Was that what it was like in Europe? Or do you think that this just speaks to your personal ambition and interest that you were um, willing to take a, a risk and, and join different companies at such a, a young age? Well, I think that's probably, it's true for two, both sides, mm -hmm. you know. For example, Finnish National Ballet, you know, they're, they're still, they're talking, oh, it should be Finnish Ballet, but you know, now there's a, quite a bit of foreigners mm -hmm. and people tend to stay where they are in their country right. and this, that. Then there are some people who have a little bit more, uh, want to have other experiences or curiosity. You know, like um, I have, um, you know, I'm a fabulously impatient person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get things done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm willing to go work really hard. Right. And I, I enjoy achieving things. Mm -hmm. And as soon as, you know, done something, then I need to learn something new. Otherwise, I get bored. Mm -hmm. Like, I right. have to learn all the time something to, that's exciting for me in life. See, I think that that is what you just said really definitely in my mind defines you as an artistic director, which I want to get to in one second. But um, mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit more about your time at San Francisco Ballet first. Um, what were those years like? It was early in Helgi Thomason's uh, reign as artistic yeah. director. So um, did you feel like things were changing? What was the, the culture of the company like? And what were you dancing? I think what happened was, you know, like... Changes always change. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen overnight. And I think, think the transition from Michael Smune to Helgi, you know, uh, um, it wasn't a smooth one. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it, it's, uh, but Helgi knew what he wanted and he was brought there to do a job. And boy, has he done a job. Oh, and mm -hmm. I was 35 years or something like that. So I think the all the early turmoil was just sort of done. There was little residue of that. Mm -hmm. He'd done some changes in a, in a personnel. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Me and Tony Randazzo, we joined the company on the same day. Mm -hmm. On the same and day. Now, to to Tony is also, you know, my ballet master mm -hmm. here since my, uh, my whole tenure. And uh, I just remember us getting to dance just about everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I love the environment. You know, Helgi was teaching, Bonnie Bourne was ballet mistress, and Irina Jagobson was teaching. So, you know, I wanted to learn as much from Bonnie about the, you know, train the balancing way, which was not my upbringing. Uh, and then Irina Jagobson was just like perhaps the best uh, classical, academic classical teacher I've ever seen. And I'm so grateful for not only for her friendship, but what I learned from her and when I look at the people of that period of San Francisco Ballet, oh my God, how she has influenced them all. Mm -hmm. You know, like I see the way they teach and I'm like, I know the structure. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I was, Irina was also a big part of the reason there. And I was very happy. I often mentioned that she's like 
uh, a family for me, like my professional mother, mm-hmm. and uh, just the luckiest guy in the world to to have uh, worked with her. And you know, like when I was in Russia, she saw my examination. She oh. she was best friends with my teacher's wife. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in Holland. She was a guest teacher there and putting a ballet by Leonard Jakobson up and she lived across the street from me. Mm-hmm. So I saw that she seemed lonely and I would say, Irina, let's go to the <laughs> museum out on the weekends. Huh. And uh, we already had a connection there and I always like cook, like cooking. So I would say, Irina, I just got some great reindeer meat from Finland. I'm going to make a dinner <laughs> for you. Why don't you come over? Uh-huh. <laughs> so that lineage was just really, really great. That's amazing. Right. Did it feel to you at all like kind of a leap of faith to join a company that had just transitioned? There wasn't, I guess, really an, any establishment as to what Helgi was going to do, what direction he was going to take the company in. Was that something that worried you or you were just so focused on being in America and dancing with a company like San Francisco Ballet? Well, actually, um, I would have never joined San Francisco Ballet prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I see. It was, yeah. So Helgi was a draw for you. Yeah, and I I had seen Helgi dance a lot. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know, I also trusted Irina. Mm-hmm. I asked mm-hmm. her That's earlier cool. and uh, initially said, no, absolutely not. And then when Helgi came there and he said, all right, I'm going to be full-time there. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, yeah, I think we're good. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So yeah. And by the way, I like to take risks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can tell that too. <laughs> so you can't be too. If you're just willing to work and learn, mm-hmm. and are open-minded, if you build yourself to one company to this level, you can always do that in the next company. But when you re-establish yourself in the next company, hopefully you put the house together even better and you become a better dancer. And then mm-hmm. you can, uh, you know, some people are so, they want to hold on to that. I'm a little soloist and if I go somewhere, I have to be a little soloist, you know? <laughs> and it's just like, it doesn't matter. It's all about dancing and dancing well and learning the most you can. Mm-hmm. You've kind of had a, a similar process as an artistic director, as an artistic leader. You've been, you've um, run several different organizations before Boston Ballet. So I'm curious, um, what what were your ambitions um, in t- in those terms while you were dancing? Did you always think, hey, someday I want to be an artistic director? And um, what made you decide that it was the point in your dance career to shift from being a principal dancer on stage every night to um, finding a position of artistic leadership? Well, it, it's the first question, really. I um, I don't know why. Uh, I think I was still in, you know, like maybe around 18 years old. And, uh, you know, of course, you wanted to be the greatest dancer in the world. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, maybe I'm not going to be the greatest dancer in a world, but I'm going to do the damage to learn the most. And I want to be a super pro. Mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. to see this super pro. I make the mo- most out of what I have. And I was very lucky. I sort of passed that, what I thought I could do two, three times. Mm-hmm. And so I felt very at peace with my, 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 my career in a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, then um, I thought that maybe my bigger contribution will be as a director than just a individual dancer and uh quickly i realized there's no place to go study it so start Mm self-educating and since Uh i was interested in a global dance anyway that was not a chore that was just what i wanted to see Mm -hmm. i collected videotapes and i had this network of exchanging tapes there was a new production in paris i needed to see how it was (laughs) flop tapes and uh (laughs) i had all the periodicals that uh you know published in different languages and I went through them every month and and then in San Francisco I started I saw how the fundraising and how the companies positioned themselves then I aligned my interest on um, dance history mm-hmm. and uh, sort of the current state of the world of dance with the uh, engagements or speaking speaking engagements mm-hmm. I started in St. Mary's College Mm-hmm. And then eventually in Stanford University, 
you know, I did a, um, a lecture on a history of Sleeping Beauty from its origins and how it started in Russia and how it grew up, grew in Europe, where it went in Russia and how it came to England and what it was Sleeping Beauty that we know in America today. That was fun because, you know, the, the Bay Area critics were <laughs> listening a couple of nights before, a week before the opening night of the Sleeping Beauty. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and then the last part of it, I always knew I want to run a big company, mm. really big company, you know. So that was, you know, um, a goal. You know, I decided, you know, I was about 20 years, 19 years in a profession. I, I realized my body was, you know, giving up on me. Mm -hmm. and I learned I had a really worn out hip. And because of that, I had a couple of herniated discs. And there was like, there was no way of, really continuing mm -hmm. and uh and i probably stopped delivering at the level that i had delivered for the company so it was like you know why prolong the pain for me and uh <laughs> done mm -hmm. and, yeah uh, luckily i think a week later i was offered a job as an artistic director with the marine ballet mm -hmm. Wow, I, I was going to ask which one came first. So you made that decision with no plans that you were going to retire, and then this came. Into yeah, your lap. it really came, and um, it was. It's a marine ballet. It's a big school with a sort of a little junior company. And I said, you know, this is not what I want as my goal. Mm -hmm. I they had a director that had partied. They lost part of the students, and I, I said, okay, I'll take it on. Until I have a professional company, I'll, I'll do my very best, but I'm not going to be able to commit for ever. When that happens, that's when I'm going to move on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was our deal. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of like if you knew that it had a, an end, it's almost like a laboratory for you to sort of cut your teeth on. You know, you, you found your way as a, your first time as an artistic leader. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, like I, I looked at it. Either, you know, like I, you hang on to an ego and say, oh, you know, so I come from a big company. Mm -hmm. I was a principal dancer. I'm on my white horse. I expect this. And I, I was like, it's the same job. Mm -hmm. Just roll up your sleeves. You know, uh, running a, a school like that or mid-sized company or major company, it's all about leadership. Mm -hmm. You have different resources. You have a... Uh, more help in a different scales. It's not really that much easier or harder. Right. It's just the, the scale is just different. The, all the principles behind it are the same. Mm -hmm. Right. So your next leadership was uh, leadership position was at Alberta Ballet in Canada. Um, so what was that opportunity like for you? Were you putting your feelers out constantly trying to find something? How did that opportunity come about for you? It came as a favor for uh, a friend, you know, like I was mm -hmm. first, I was like, I don't think the company is the right match. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, in last time I heard about them was in this issue of dance magazine. There was a story <laughs> on them. I don't hear much of them. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was a Mavis Staines, the director of the national ballet school. I said, you know, why don't you go and just talk to them and take a look at the situation? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how it started. And I went there and I saw the theater. I was like, hmm. And I looked at the company and I just got intrigued. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Calgary Philharmonics and Edmonton Symphony playing for them. Not enough performances. And I, I just saw how it could be sort of uh, tweaked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I got to work and uh, we did a wonderful Thing with that company and um, got it touring internationally, changed the focus of the sort of a small classical ballet company with a sort of a commitment to, to contemporary dance and really being relevant. Mm -hmm. And uh, suddenly, you know, the, you know, like in a business school, they would tell you, you know, you, you need to create customer loyalty that you can sell X equals X mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't have to be sleeping beauty. Right. And, um, one year we were like really down the season and I was out of money and I need to do one more program. So I created this festival of new works, basically 
just world premieres from unknown choreographers, but really taking it out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them were not that successful and some were incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. That's why Yormaello did his very first professional piece of choreography. And uh, so, but then the second year, it was like packed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it got traction and uh, the audience is there. They said, anytime we go to see the company, we feel great. So they just, you know, like bought into what we're doing. And it was so wonderful to see. Mm -hmm. It's making me think there is a sort of balance you have to find as an artistic director that if you lean too heavily on things that are certainties, like a full length, you know, like Sleeping Beauty and Swan Lake that will pack a house, but then you tip over into this point where then it's not fresh, it's sort of stayed or a little flat or dull. So how do you find the balance between doing things that like those war horses that are going to get people in seats, but then also maintaining relevance through things that are going to stimulate um, art scores that demand a little more? Well, there's, there's, there's two things in that. Mm-hmm. The first thing is you have to decide what is the perspective that you want for the company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have decided in Boston, you know, we do the big classical ballets. We focus on neoclassical dance and serious commitment to contemporary dance. So it's it's the three doors. It's inclusive, not inclu- uh, exclusive. Mm-hmm. And it's relevant to today's people, all generations. And I don't care which is your entry point. My job is to seduce you <laughs> and cross over and enjoy the whole array of it. The second part, what I would say for people who try to fix their finances with these big ballets is, A, look at your budgets. Everything loses money except Nutcracker. Right. <laughs> so you might be selling a couple more tickets for some of those productions, but you're still losing money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you do work that's interesting, is really art, really good quality, you can find people find people who want to support you to very different extent. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, in, in America, we depend so much on on on, uh, on a revenue, and it's not government revenue. Right. It's not city revenue. You know, mm-hmm. city of Boston supports us with one thousand five hundred dollars out of thirty seven million dollars. This was the first year that from National Endowment of the Arts we got a zero. Oof. So. I depend 90% on individual donors and, you know, like a small margin of corporate. Mm-hmm. So suddenly those decisions become much clearer. Right. It's like mm-hmm. you, do you want to have the slow death of just being a museum? Mm-hmm. I want to be a living theater for today's people, but right. there's the education process for the dancers. I want the dancers to be educated through the productions of all this, they need to know all that, then they become better dancers. I don't try to educate my audiences. I expose these works to the audience. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. how I think it works. Did you have government support in Canada? Yes, yeah. more than here. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I just was thinking, like the National Endowment for the Arts has just been shrinking continually for the past few decades. So that's still pretty minimal, even if it's even if they are committing to you. But how... Was that a surprise to you when you changed, when you came to Boston Ballet, this sort of um, shift in how you had to raise money before maybe you could count on the government more, but now what were you doing to pursue individual donors or maybe some corporate sponsors that would be different from what your first experiences were like? Well, in Canada, you know, like the the company had a very small government support. Mm-hmm. I think the first, I, first thing I went with my chairman to Ottawa and talk to the Canada Council, we got 600% increase into government funding. If you understand the numbers right, you understand how small the initial <laughs> grant <laughs> <is>. <laughs> but Then I got frustrated with, you know, after, you know, three years of really changing the company to totally different thing. Right. Still funded at the same level. Right. And, you know, but it's, you know, let's say that it's 20% of the company's budget. But, you know, the 20% of our budget right now will be very helpful and make things easier, but it's not there. And this is the, in Canada, uh, people feel like they pay uh, a little bit higher taxes 
that then it's, you know, the government assists and the giving culture is very different. Right. It's 80% there corporate and 20% individual. Right. When I came to Boston, it was 80-20. Right. But the other way, right. now it's 90-something individual. And, uh, wow. And, and, you know, it's um, you don't go and ask money. You don't try to squeeze, you know, you explain what are you doing, mm-hmm. why are you doing. You're building bridges of understanding. And at the end when people... Uh, incredibly generous they feel so good about it because they understand how what is the impact for the organization and they find so much meaning in it because we're all doing it together Mm -hmm. i'm not successful we are all together successful they have allowed boston ballet to be successful Mm -hmm. me to be successful for our dancers to be successful you know it's like it's much more communal effort not one person can do that mm-hmm. when you were at alberta ballet you it looks like you spent one year also as executive director is that correct you had both positions at the same time so how did that inform you and because it's a completely different side of things right in the artistic realm but still very connected how did that what did you learn from that and how did you take some of those skills with you to boston ballet well it's uh if I put it very simply, uh, every artistic decision is financial decision. Mm-hmm. Every financial decision is an artistic decision. It was about leadership. Mm-hmm. It was about, you know, like aligning. Let's not spend too much time in a process on this element on the marketing. Let's do this. Let's try this and put all our focus into it. Sort of realigning things and... Uh, and I I enjoyed it, but my God, the amount of work, it's crazy. I bet. And uh, then, I, of course, when I came to Boston the first year, we didn't have executive director here. So I was not officially, but it was me and the chairman. I was doing pretty much the same mm-hmm. thing. Then another time, I was actually formally executive director in Boston Valley on an interim basis for, was it a year and a half, something like that? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then... Last time when we were in a transition with the executive director, then naturally you cover that aspect. But, you know, if I could ask for one thing, I would say, I think I've been there, done that. I'd love never to have never to do that. Again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because I was wondering if it almost is better in a way because you're bo- kind of both arms. So you obviously agree on everything. Is it, <laughs> you, don't <have laughs> you to, know, right. you don't have to work around someone else. But if you have someone in that position that you really share the same values with, I imagine obviously it's much, it's helpful. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a difficult thing because, you know, the way things are set up in America. You know, uh, both of the jobs are so difficult. You know, like Michael, I'm pulled more out of the studio now than when you were here. And it's this constant, you know, like tug of war. You have to go where you're the most needed for the organization. Mm -hmm. And then executive director's job is is really, really tough job. And both jobs are 24-7. So you put both on top of each other. And I have also seen that environment change in the last, even in the last 20 years, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I don't think you can really today be artistic director the way it was 30 years ago. Right. I mean, when Uh, people talk about Balanchine, you know, it it was just so, he had Lincoln backing him permanently. But now you kind of have to be the Lincoln too. You have to be the face of it has to also have an understanding of finances that I don't think was required, you know, decades yeah, ago. Yeah, and, and, and also I, I feel for the executive directors. I mean, it is, uh, it's a crueling job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, there's so much expected from you, uh, uh, from communications and, you know, uh, board development. And, uh, you know, of, of course, uh, the AD and ED work on many of these things together, mm-hmm. but, uh, whoa, that's a pressure cooker and the environment is not that fertile in so many ways. You know, if you look at the arts funding, you have to be so creative and find a new ways. And it's uh, the the pressure, it's a true pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So what was the environment like at Boston Ballet financially and artistically when you first started out as director? Well, uh, the company hadn't had a director for, I think, a year and a half, something like that. So um, when I first arrived, I, uh, it was clear that the company was good. Uh, they had very good you know, arm coordination and overall coordination. Um, there was, um, you know, I was brought here to do change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the board of directors had, they felt that they, they run that road to the end and they wanted to refocus the company. So I pitched to them that I want to balance it by different repertoire. And because of that, I need to change some of the training. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they had very, very good individual teachers. Mm -hmm. But even a couple of the teachers that I ended up, ballet masters, I ended up letting letting go, um, you know, (laughs) it was not, one of them was excellent. But, you know, the company didn't hear them. Mm. They were talking and it just like didn't, Chill. it had been too long and it needed to, you needed to refresh. Mm-hmm. So uh, I brought all new artistic team, some more successfully than less, but I understood the importance of change. change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, there were some things people liked it the way it was before and you know it's like any time when you take change it takes some time sure. and uh, you know uh, emphasis I immediately lengthened the company class by 15 minutes to hour and a half because the training is so essential right. our interior rate went immediately down and uh, lots of positive things I wanted more musical um, uh, more musicality and approach and articulation different level of point work and um you know it's like what was some some individuals considered it artistry that every night they went and did it just slightly differently (laughs) (laughs) and for me that was just way too much skating (laughs) you can't do that in in a value system that i I want and you know that is not called musicality Mm -hmm. i'm sorry right (laughs) so when a new artistic director comes in for dancers, it can often be like a very scary time that feels unstable. So how did you kind of balance that stability that you needed to give the dancers and them giving them that chance to kind of adapt to the new environment while still needing to stay true to yourself and true to your vision for the company? It's uh, that's an excellent question because, you know, it's uh, you basically explain to the company what you're going to do what what we are all going to do mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. and in some areas it might be you know lifting the ante up here and who can live up to it great and who can't then you have to make decisions but you um you empower people into you know you believe in them and you work with them you communicate with them and uh, you know sometimes we are our own worst enemies i certainly been many times mm-hmm. in my life and uh the bottom line here is every artistic director needs great dancers, good dancers, excellent dancers, always. So just get to work and put your ego aside and try to get there and create an environment where we try to help everybody. Everybody's not going to make it. And uh, then you do that a couple of times and suddenly there's a shift. Mm-hmm. And then you have a big stable body of, philosophically aligned dancers who you are training them to be tools for these choreographers. Mm -hmm. They have to be open-minded and skilled. And that's when the dancers get the most out of it and it's more fun for them. That's why they work so hard. To be that wonderful tool in in the hands of somebody like William Forsyth. Mm -hmm. Definitely want to talk more about the company's relationship with Forsyth, which is a huge deal now. But um, one thing I want to talk about because it feels so appropriate in today's climate is I think one of the real markers of your directorship is the way that you have consistently um, and completely led 
the company through several financial crises. You know, it's like you started out and it was already, there were issues that were totally beyond your control. You uh, coming in and with, um, I'm not sure what year it was, but when the company got kicked out of the, the Wang for the Nutcracker, which is just the Nutcracker, as you said, it's the only profitable time of the year. And that just sort of was sinking the company financially, but you steered the ship out of that. Then you did get slammed with the recession. So, but all these times you've come out of it better off financially than you were to start off. So is this something that you feel like, not that I'm not going to say you enjoy it, but it's something like <laughs> it, it seems to, to go hand in hand with your ambition, your way that you're just like, there's a problem. I'm, I'm going to solve it. I need to improve my dancing this way. I'm going to work harder. I need to get us out of the hole. We're going to do this. What were those moments like for you leading the company out of these sort of dark times? Well, it's, um, I have to say that, you know, nobody enjoys those times. Mm-hmm. Tough times bring people together and, and tough times also energize people. Right. And I always say tough times don't last, tough people do. Mm-hmm. I signed my contract five days before 9-11 in 2001. Oh, my gosh. So that was the first bank. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the Northcracker dislocation, you know, was really, we were kicked out. And I think there was uh, lots of, the intent was us not to survive that. Mm-hmm. And it was so close to death blow. But we did survive, right. and we became we were came out of it better because of certain processionings that we did. Mm-hmm. Can, then, can we talk about that for a little longer? It's I, yeah. I remember the situation at the time being a huge deal. But what exactly what were tell me about some of the things that you had to personally navigate through? It's not just like okay, we don't have the theater, we move on over to the next place. But it was. The capacity was completely altered. You had the production itself didn't fit. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was basically uh, we were served the notice very late, mm-hmm. and uh, I wish it was just good intentions. Uh, and it put the Nutcracker in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it has been the stable of the city, and I didn't want to vacate it. I didn't want to leave a year. A break, no. and uh, so we decided we booked uh, still a big theater, about thousand seven thousand eight hundred theater, colonial theater, mm-hmm. but the stage size was different. We could never have put that production, mm-hmm. uh, the Nutcracker that we had in, at the Wang Center right. on that stage. So we built a whole new production. The financial impact of it was, uh, you know, eight plus million Oof. of the company budget of nineteen million at that time. Oof. Yeah, it was, uh, and, and you know, we probably had some liabilities as well. So it was like, well, we were really our back against the um, wall. But you know, then the following year, uh, we went to the Opera House, which right. was great fit. Uh, and uh, a year later, I moved all our operations away from the Wang and to the Opera House, and that's when I was executive director. At the same time, we rebranded the company, gave a whole new image, and <clears throat> launched a new feature. Mm-hmm. Right. And then... How much advance notice did you have before you had to completely build a brand new production of Nutcracker? <laughs> uh, this renewal was supposed to happen, I think, like the first of the year, right? Like a year right. ahead, ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And there were some uh, delays and... Uh, I. I might be wrong, but I think we got the word some sometime in April or oh. something like that. And uh, so you got to move quick. Right. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you, you got out of that hole, and then we moved to the recession. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, then, then we started patching things, and mm-hmm. the, the platform, our foundation for the Boston Ballet was, was better and getting stronger. But naturally, still vulnerable, and and then 08 um, was the time when yeah, I was the interim executive director. I didn't have a chairman of the board, and uh, there was a it was right sort of a trans- transition, and then we were hit with the big big financial dilemma, mm-hmm. and 
lots of people got really worried about their personal uh, um, wealth mm -hmm. and, and families, just like now. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite a few people parted away ways from the board. And then luckily, we had nucleus who looked at this situation and said, you know, uh, Boston Ballet is not in a horrible situation. This is a short term, you know, like, like we are undercapitalized. Mm -hmm. And um, we got external analysts. One of our board members lent his company's very credible uh, analysts to analyze our finances because you know, I'm, I'm a naive fin. I think people tell you the truth, but <laughs> people just talk through their teeth like you can see today, perfect examples mm -hmm. all the time. Right. And I said, you know, I don't want to go to the Boston community and give them something that would be considered lip service. Right. Right. We need credible, credible story here, mm -hmm. and it has to be external. And basically, we put this plan in place and said we need to raise $10 million. And... Uh, Believe it or not, we did it very fast. Right. At the time, we got a couple of new people, we got a new chairman, and uh, the nucleus that was with the company together with the chairman, chairman, we paid off the debt, then we renovated our building, we invested in productions, and we started flying, uh, clicking at the totally different speed, and uh, you know, we built our studio theater in the 19 Clarendon, now we've uh, had a Lincoln Center season, London season. We right. just had a Paris season a year ago. You know, like we got the company where I, I sort of wanted. Right. It took a lot, lot longer than I thought. <laughs> so kind of going along these same lines, um, how has your experience been so far leading Boston Ballet through this COVID-19 um, pandemic? Obviously, it's not nearly close to over, but you've probably had to make some really tough decisions so far. And can you tell us a little bit about what your mindset's been like during this time? Well, you know, this is, this is different from the other because there was something concrete each time right. in the past. Mm -hmm. And you just have to figure how to get from here to there. Right, right now, uh, the earth is moving. You don't even know where you are today. Right. And tomorrow you're in a different place. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you have to sort of orchestrate the future while the ground that you're standing is actually moving right. under you. Yeah. So in a way, you have to be very um, patient. You really have to listen. You have to be very strategic. And don't expect that this is just going to go away. Right. Be ready have your short-term strategies and actions very clear. Understand that there might be a mid-term mid uh, mid mid uh, issue right. and there might be a really long-term. So be ready for these three rounds mm -hmm. and let your understanding of the third round that you wish you never have to deal with right. inform some of the decisions in a round one because if you don't, you're irresponsible. Right. Because ultimately, uh, my job is to be the gatekeeper for this art form, but this organization needs to exist. Right. So I have to protect the existence of the organization and then with the people in it. I'm very proud of uh, our board right now. Um, everybody agrees. We want to keep Boston Ballet as we are. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the... the scale that we do this is the kind of approach we do otherwise they would not have any interest to be part of it and i'm on the same page right. you know it's like this is not the time to scale back and change the whole concept and uh that would be really really detrimental in so many ways so we're trying to navigate this uncertain times uh with strategies and understand that the whole environment is different now and when we come out of it it's going to be a different world could you tell us at all about some of the things you're considering um like is there a world where we have uh performances where the audience maintains social distance is that something that one could consider or does it just not make any financial sense 
still asking the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, you know, of course, we're focusing on getting lots, lots of um, material into social media, mm -hmm. uh, virtual things as understood today. But I'm also trying to percolate something that's quite different. Right. And we're in early stages of that. And I think those elements, if we get to sort of a normalcy that looks a little bit like how it was in the past, those parts will be part of it anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the social distancing, and it's, you're very smart. You just said that the key word there was uh, the economics of it. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, everything loses money anyway. So let's say that if we make only a third of the money, <laughs> You know, like, it's like we've started to bleed right. to death. Right. Right. And, you know, it's just like, and how fun would it be, know. you know, every fourth person in the orchestra, you know, sitting in the audience with a mask. Mm -hmm. Let's get the testing. Let's get the drugs that help mm -hmm. people deal with if they can um, contract the virus. And let's work on a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And let's... The testing is the key. So you want to isolate right. the people that get people are going to get sick, but there's going to be less and less. Mm -hmm. There's room in the hospitals mm -hmm. when it's not peaking out of control. And, you know, uh, I'm not a clairvoyant, but, you know, I, I just don't see the other experience. And I, I rather wait to the moment that we can go all together back in right. there and just have enough testing and, and find a way through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You I'm, a, I'm a pretty much the only one who thinks like this. <laughs> Everybody else seems to think I just can't see. I don't see the enjoy right. anything enjoyable. Well, thing. the other thing is that dance, you know, of course every art form is really heavily impacted by this, but dance is special in that, you know, I, you know, we could stay at home and play our cello and practice and we can sing, but aside from the um, well-documented Zoom bars that everyone is doing throughout this, you know, you can't replace um, the experience of rehearsing and being with other people. You can't create, you know, think of the way that so many ballets are, you know, serenade doesn't look like serenade if the girls are standing six feet apart. Right. So it's, it's a uniquely impacted art form. So that sort of... Um, is going to have to inform everything that you do as a leader. And one of those things being like, like I was saying, it doesn't replace the rehearsal process. So your dancers are going to come back by no fault of their own, very out of shape. Yeah. What, yeah what is That's something I think about all the time. Like the dancers are not, it's not like you can open up and then the next week be on stage. I'm sure that's something right. that you're constantly considering too. So what does that kind of look like too? getting the dancers ready and back in space that's effective for them? Well, it's 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 going to be a slightly different process, and um, probably like like the material that we put out on a, on a, on a social media. Mm -hmm. I don't have the luxury to be as scrutinizing now than some other time. Right. So there's a little bit leeway. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a little bit leeway in that front. Right. I, I don't think it's realistic not to. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes, makes sense, sense to me. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's not end on this note. Let's <laughs> let's talk about um, some of the artistic achievements that you've um, brought in over the course of your time as director. And I think one that I know that you personally are immensely proud of, but that I think really has uh, meant a lot to the dancers and audience um, is the relationship with William Forsythe that has developed and um, that has brought some really incredible art and. I think it's it's unlike anything else that's being cultivated in the United States right now. So how did you um, begin to bring Forsyth in uh, to Boston Ballet? And um, why has it made such a good fit for the company and, and for Bill, too? Well, um, I've always been a fan of his choreography. Mm -hmm. And uh, he even changed me as a dancer in San Francisco mm -hmm. in one rehearsal. You know, I was working with him and uh, I, I always was fascinated with his work and I found it quite hard. And in one hour, he liberated me totally. Mm -hmm. 
and I became a better dancer in everything else. So then when I came here, my first program was Mark Morris's Maelstrom, Bill's in the middle, somewhat elevated, and uh, Yorma world premiere, Yorma Ello's world premiere. So then I was talking with him and, you know, we did middle again, then we did uh, second detail. And uh, when I would see him somewhere, I said, you got to come. <laughs> and then he said, he came when we went to Lincoln Center uh, with the second detail. He came and he was like, wow, I really love the dancers, their openness and their skill level. And say, this is how I want to work. And uh, then he said, well, it took quite, quite a while to get me here, right? <laughs> About 10 years. <laughs> and then that relationship started and, you know, he's, he's so at home. He loves to work here. He, he, he loves the dancers. He asks so much. Mm-hmm. And everybody delivers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I mean, this is a dream come true. I don't know if I could have dreamt of situation, you know, mm-hmm. because us now his new home company and you know my job is never to try to tell him what to do my job is to enable him to do what he wants to do right is that great of an artist i'm sure he loves that too obviously (laughs) (laughs) that makes benefits to that yeah (laughs) all right well that brings us to the end of our interview but we have just one short little bit left that we like to call our lightning rounds we ask you just one thing and you let us know the first thing that pops into your mind so First question is, if you could come back to the stage tomorrow and perform any ballet, what would it be? Demon Variations. Good Great one. pick. <laughs> um, is there a role, uh, a ballet that was created after your time as a dancer that you would particularly enjoy dancing? Uh, I think the year after I retired, I saw Ballet by Christopher Bruce and I was like... Um, it's the immigrant story. The name escapes me. <laughs> Once in a while, there are ballets that they're like, oh, I would have loved to have done uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have a dream production for Boston Ballet? You have no budget, sky's the limit. What would you do? <laughs> Ooh, so many. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one of them, uh, which is probably never going to happen because we have such a great Sleeping Beauty uh, with David Walker sets and all that. I have always dreamt of white sleeping beauty. Everything is white. Different shades of white. Mm -hmm. And you could use, you use color, but like just 5%. Mm -hmm. And you know how, you know, if it's a a certain peachy orange, but there's just a little bit of it. And it's contrasted with the like a shiny plastic white to warm velvet Mm -hmm. white to to create that kind of a, a big ballet, but but in in a totally avant-garde way. Cool, I like it. Uh, lastly, is there something that you're doing personally that you find is helping you through quarantine? Mm. Maybe a book, a TV show, movie, podcast. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I'm very lucky because you know I'm sheltering up here in Maine. Mm. I have a, a place, and there's a river. And I go catch trout oh, nice. at the right Fishing. Time. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Fishing. And then uh, the other thing, I, I rekindled something I did when, when I was a kid. Um, I'm starting to put some stamp collections together. Oh, fun. Cool. And when I start something, yes, I'm a little obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I'm makes you good at what you do. <laughs> yeah. I like that. That all sounds very relaxing and meditative. Yeah. That's just what you need right now. <laughs> The nice contrast for the stress that I deal with daily. Uh, I can't sure, even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Miko. We really appreciate it. And best of luck to uh, everyone at Boston Ballet in the coming year. So thank you. You guys have been great. And you're doing a great job. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great talking. Thank you for joining us this week. If you would like to support the Conversations on Dance podcast, there are a few ways that you can help. Click over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Download episodes when you listen to allow our analytics to better understand our listenership. Join our Facebook group, Conversations on Dance, Friends of the Pod, or you can offer a donation. 
Conversations on Dance has always been and will always be free to our listeners. You can help us continue to create and produce this unique behind-the-curtain look at the dance world by visiting conversationsondancepod.com support. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week. 